Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, super forecasters. Welcome to another omniscient edition of Maniacs, where we recruit high-quality misfits, visionaries, and weirdos, and ideally hold on to them for more than a day at a time. (laughs) I'm Roz Taylor, and it's been a busy week, what with the new immigration guidelines coming out, so let's meet our panel. Naomi Smith is CEO of the campaigning group Best for Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hello. What do you make of the much-ballyhoo points-based immigration system because there are no visas for low-skilled workers people coming here must have an offer of work from an approved sponsor no benefits till they're granted indefinite leave to remain it's pretty tough isn't it it's it's awful let's face it they you know gloves are off this is exactly not what people want um and i'll come on to that in a second uh we've got proof that it isn't um it will cripple social care it will hurt hospitality Um, And most of all, it just sends a really horrible signal about what Britain is, who we are and the kind of society our government is attempting to make us be. It is about being a closed protectionist society and not an open one. Earlier uh, in 2020, uh, Besser Britain did some MRP polling on freedom of movement and even 57% of Conservative voters in the 2019 general election support reciprocal freedom of movement. There are only 12% of the country who are outright against it um, and on our side there are about 14% of nutters who are absolutely happy to accept inbound freedom of movement even if we don't have it reciprocated <laughs> by the rest of the EU. Um, so look, I, th- I think this is awful um i think we need to be talking about essential workers rather than skilled and low skilled everybody knows that if you've got an aging population you've either got to have policies to change you know to make it more palatable for couples to have more children uh, and to increase your birth rate or you have to import your population uh, to look after your 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 elderly um and at the moment we're doing neither um and even if we were to start doing some of the you know policies that encourage people uh, to take more paid parental leave and therefore um, incentivize people to st- uh, you know leave the workplace in order to have children it would take us decades to get to the levels that we would need to look after our old people and and basically what this is is about urging companies to replace what they call low skilled jobs with robots but you know in the care sector and lots of hospitality jobs we we simply can't replace people with robots certainly not yet and you know i'm sure most of us wouldn't want our loved ones being cared for by a machine when it could be you know a nice caring individual who's dedicated their life to looking after people and it's a big red burden um big red tape burden um now as well on on employers that are already quite pressed because they are now going to have to assess how staff um, are meeting eligibility criteria um, when they've already got lots of other things to do so I think for a variety of reasons we've all just got to admit this is awful and not what Britain wants. 
Because Priti Patel this morning was saying that basically there were millions of uh, economically inactive people in the British population who were just just waiting, apparently, to take all these low-skilled jobs. But of course, unemployment is actually very low, isn't it? It is. I mean, they, they've got to decide, you know, which which is true, because both things can't be. Uh, we do have record unemployment, but we also have record numbers of in-work poverty. Uh, look to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation recent report on that. People are underemployed to an extent but but much of the time they're doing more than one very bad job that they don't want to be doing uh, they're feeling very insecure they're low paid they're on zero hours um, these are unfulfilling jobs um, that aren't making people happy that aren't empowering them to be the best versions of themselves uh, and to live happy fulfilling lives so which is it government do we either have record unemployment and uh, you know and and they want to disregard uh, all these levels of relative poverty that that people like Joseph Rancher Foundation are saying are true or we have quite high unemployment and there are people to pick up this slack when the so-called low-skilled European uh, migrants are no longer eligible to come. It, it, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's ridiculous and you're, you're quite right to call it out, Ros. We'll talk about this and more with our two special guests today. Sean Whelan is the London correspondent for Ireland's national broadcaster, RTE. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. A pleasure. He's reported from wars in Bosnia and Kosovo and spent 10 years as European editor in Brussels, including the Nice and Lisbon Treaty referendums. Then he was back to Dublin to cover the economic crisis and recovery of the past decade and the potential economic impact of Brexit on Ireland. He took over at the London office in 2019. Sean, welcome to Romaniacs. Uh, very many Irish citizens come to the UK to work. We've we've all got used to that. And there's no change for them. They're, they'll be exempt from the new restrictions because that's due to the British Nationality Act, isn't it? Do you think more Irish will decide to take advantage of their special status? In the UK, no. Uh, no. I don't think <laughs> so at all. I, I, I don't think there's going to be any change in the, the flow of people coming here. Some people come, they work, uh, they stay or they go back or they move on somewhere else. It's perfectly normal. And a lot of British people go and work in Ireland as I well. I think that flow might increase. My boss <laughs> happens to be uh, British um, at the moment and his predecessor indeed was British as head of news at RTE. Um, no, I mean... You're right. It is the question about will the British go in the other direction. It is, after all, going to be the one EU state where you will still have free movement rights. Uh, So um, perhaps there will be a bit of an influx, uh, a bigger influx. Um, The other thing, though, that is uh, of concern in Ireland right now as a result of these uh, new uh, ideas being published is the issue of what is known in the EU as frontier workers, uh, people who live on one side of a border and work Mm. on the other. And of course, this is your only land border. Uh, I'm thinking of a factory I visited uh, a couple of years ago, just after this Brexit stuff erupted, uh, called Combi Lift up in Monaghan. 10% of their workforce live in Northern Ireland, come across the border every day. The notion of them having to show passports every day is just yeah. nonsense. Uh, and because there's something like 360, 380 crossing points on that border, more than the entire eastern border of the EU, you can't. You just can't. Whatever about customs posts trying to corral trucks through a dozen places trying to you know, stop people and look for passports. Not going to happen. Uh, and that's why, for practical reasons, I suspect there's there's no change in the status of Irish uh, in the uh, UK, along with those, those uh, legal uh, provisions beforehand and this common travel area, uh, which is now being more fully fleshed out. It was a kind of a custom and practice thing in the past. If you had a euro for every time a British commentator asked you, why don't Sinn Féin just take their seats? <laughs> how, how rich would you be? 
I wouldn't have the bus fare back to Westminster. <laughs> Literally not a single British commentator has ever asked me, why don't Sinn Féin uh, take their seats? One or two uh, of my fellow foreign correspondents uh, asked about it and I sort of gave them the potted version. Their eyes glazed over and they moved away. Uh, but no, nobody here is interested. Which kind of shows just how ill-informed we are in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a general pattern. It's not just to do with Sinn Féin and Northern Ireland politics. It extends to a vast range of areas. It just seems that in the fog bank beyond Holyhead, you're not really sure what's out there. Vaguely on the far side is Canada and New York. And there <laughs> might be some place in the middle where you go for rugby weekends and stag weekends. But apart from that, you're not really sure what goes on there. Also joining us is another Globetrotter who became Reuters' youngest ever bureau chief when she took charge in Zagreb during the final years of the war in the former Yugoslavia. From one war zone to another, she was the first Remain supporting MEP to appear on Question Time back in October. In First in October? Is that true? You were the first one? I was one. the first for about 20 years, yeah. Oh, that's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. But now it's time for the real broadcasting gauntlet, Romaniacs. <laughs> Former MEP and leader of the Lib Dems in the European Parliament, Caroline Foden joins us in the studio. Caroline, welcome. Hello. Thanks for ha- inviting me to Romaniacs. It's a pleasure. So we were talking about immigration and the new policy. It's going to it's going to close the door entirely on self-employed workers, so there'll be no more Polish plumbers or Latvian builders. Do we have the resources to take up the slack, do you think? Oh, absolutely not. Certainly not in the trades profession. I mean, that's always been something that we've lacked in this country, which is probably why Polish plumbers did so well here um, when they started coming over. Um, I, I think... I think this move is just a sign of of the flavour of Brexit that we're going to have. It didn't really need to be like this, um, but we're only, what, two weeks in? Feels a lot longer than that. And it seems like the bad news just keeps on coming and keeps on getting worse. And so Naomi's talked about the care sector. I mean, that's obviously a sector that's really going to be at risk, but also agriculture. You know, I come from the southwest and... There's a huge organic farm near me that employs hundreds of people and they just never get any British people applying for the jobs. I mean, British people doesn't, don't want to do that kind of work. And, and you know, I've spoken to the guy that owns it and he says something about the Poles and the and the Bulgarians. They, they seem to, they, they certainly have a different work ethic, but they also seem to have this ability to go out in really, you know, awful, dreadful, cold, rainy, muddy conditions and just pick the crops and they just blooming well get on with it and and British people don't want to do that so I, I just don't I, I sort of I don't understand it and you know you also have to ask the question of what is a skill who decides what a skill is so they talk about skilled labor but but what's a skill you know I would say that caring for a, an old person with dementia is is actually quite a skilled job it's not something I could do you know it, it's maybe not a skill in the way that you're a, a surgeon or a you know, an airline pilot or something like that. But it's a, it's, it's a human skill, isn't it? It's a kind of, it's a soft skill. It's an emotional intelligence. It's an emotional yeah. intelligence and it takes a special kind of person to do it. And, and I just, I don't think we have enough people to cover. No, I mean, it's just nonsense. It won't work. On domestic politics, um, only three candidates remain in the Labour leadership contest and the ballot for members officially begins today, February the 21st. Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey and Keir Starmer have all ruled out rejoining the EU. It's disappointing for many of our more committed listeners, but is it not right to suggest that rejoining <coughs> isn't a policy for the immediate future, Caroline? Um, I personally don't think it is a policy for, for right now. I, I think it's too early. I'm a great believer in 
in the value of having a period of time for reflection and a bit of acceptance. You know, we did lose. We won. I mean, we we won the popular vote, didn't we? We won the popular vote in December, but we lost because of the system we work under. And and I think we need some time now to to sort of reflect and 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 discuss how we move forward with a pro EU campaign. And and also, you know. Brexit has barely started and I think we do need a bit of time to see how it's going to play out and to see what we're up against and you know if you believe anything that David Frost said on Monday night in Brussels this is going to be the dawn of a of a great new era for the UK and everything's going to be wonderful so you know maybe to be right. fair on the other side maybe we need to look, wait a little while and see how that pans out but I mean definitely our aim is to get back in obviously but I think it's a very long road and I, I, I personally think that PR is a way to get there but I think we might come on to that a bit later but um, I, I, I think it's too early to start talking about rejoin. I think, frankly, we'll look a bit mad if we start talking about The way rejoining. I talk about it is the first rule of rejoin club is do not talk about rejoin. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very good way of putting it, actually. Today, we'll be talking about the increasingly thick quagmire of Britain's future relationship with the EU from the perspective of Dublin and, until last month, from Brussels. Plus, we'll discuss which rodents could become the first victims of Brexit. And no, unfortunately, we're not talking about Dominic Cummings this time. That's after a few reminders from Naomi. The Romaniacs away team of Roz, Ian and producer Andrew had a fantastic show in Liverpool's beautiful Epstein Theatre at the weekend with an equally brilliant audience. A special shout out goes to listener Lancashire Oatcakes. Our panel went for lunch before the show and when they tried to pay the bill, it turned out that Team Oatcakes had paid it already and sneaked out. So if you're listening, thank you very much. And if you want to know where I'm going to be having lunch in the next few weeks, just drop me a DM on Twitter. (laughs) We're about to announce a new live date. It's a bit of a surprise and the best way to find out first and get first dibs on the best tickets is to back us on Patreon. You'll get discounts on live tickets, plus a podcast a day early, and your choice of our legendary merchandise, including the new I Fought the Brexit Wars and European Friendship Club mugs. We've been really touched at how many of you have kept up with us on Patreon, even though Brexit has happened. With your support, we are going to keep on keeping on. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. And if one politics podcast a week isn't quite enough for you, don't miss our brand new spin-off show, The Bunker. Think of it as the Frasier to Romaniac's Cheers. It's out every Wednesday morning, and on this week's edition we talk about YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard, the grassroots movement to solve Britain's housing crisis. Plus, the US primaries, and what the hell TikTok is. (laughs) Find The Bunker on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever fine podcasts are available. Thanks, Naomi. And thanks again, Lancashire Oatcakes. We were so touched. We were like, well, someone's paid for our lunch. It's yeah. great. Oh, God, did I miss that? <laughs> yeah, it was really good lunch too. Let's start with Britain's deteriorating relationship with the EU. Yes, it can get worse. France's foreign minister has warned Britain and the EU are going to rip each other apart in upcoming trade negotiations. The UK's negotiator, David Frost, no, not that one, has said Britain isn't looking for a bespoke deal that will keep the UK aligned with EU rules and standards, as Theresa May did. Instead, the government is claiming a democratic mandate to be able to set its own standards, and it wants an EU-Canada-style trade deal which abolished most tariffs. Last night, Number 10 was trolling on Twitter and asking why it couldn't have that deal now, apparently forgetting that it's now refused to sign up to a level playing field. 
Naomi, last week we had Monique Hawkins of the Three Million on the podcast. Where where are we on issues like citizens' rights in these talks, which very few people are talking about? Well, indeed. Um, my read on the, the David Frost stuff is, first of all, I guess we mustn't get too distracted by the theatre. This is the theatre of negotiations and hopefully much of it is is bluff and bluster. Um, and really, rather than what they're saying in public, we need to focus on what's being going on behind the scenes, what's the real substance of, of the negotiations. And I think he's really aiming to position us as... Well, position the Conservative government um, in a in a way which is totally win win for them, and why wouldn't they? Um, so either uh, they they engineer a situation where we effectively have no deal uh, at the end of the transition period, and they get to call it Australia and say, "Hurrah! See, we we've left on exactly what we wanted, you know, same terms as Australia." Or uh, they they get to a situation where Europe blinks at the last minute and offers them Canada, and again they get to say yes, brilliant, wonderful. We've 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 got a deal exactly like Canada, where you know we don't have to have any of the the pesky intrusion of this dreadful bureaucratic system of the EU, and this is exactly what is right for Britain. And we we got a deal, we did get a deal. So it's all about positioning that this is a win win situation for the Conservatives, and uh, and and as you say, meantime it's incumbent upon all groups involved in wanting to scrutinise this to be asking the real questions like what is happening uh, to the rights both of the British still living um, in, in EU27 countries and of course the, the 3 million or so uh, EU citizens living here. And how on earth do you run a business in this climate when you really do not know what under what conditions you're going to be exporting or indeed importing mm. next year? It's, it's just, it blows my mind. It feels like the government is obsessing over all the wrong details. Uh, services are massively more important than goods, but goods are all the British negotiators seem to want to talk about. Um, why is that? Well, again, because I think it's, it's tapping into this core uh, vote of patriotic, you know, days of old when you know Britain made things that other people wanted to buy. And the fact is that we've got a service-led economy, and and you're quite right to point that out. And that's where we need to be thinking about, you know, how these organisations are going to be able to continue trading um, in this in this new environment post transition. The the good stuff it sort of feels totemic. It feels tangible to you know the Daily Mail reader who they're hoping will stick with voting for the Conservative Party. Um, and as we've mentioned several times on this show, lots of organisations do both. They don't just manufacture a product, they also sell the service attached to it in terms of, you know, the the financing of it or the the, main, the ongoing maintenance of it um, and, and things like that. So I agree, it's very, very difficult for business at the moment. Far from um, providing any kind of certainty, I think it's fueling uncertainty. And as is the case with Brexit hurting the poorest first and worst. Of course, it's the smaller, middle-sized organisations that are the least able to cope with these things. A lot of the big multinationals have already been able to pivot around this and move jobs elsewhere. Um, and the vast majority of people in the UK work for small and medium-sized enterprises, not for large multinationals. Uh, so yeah, I think this is um, a time now for the business groups that have been relatively quiet over the last couple of years to really start baring their teeth and putting pressure on government. Yeah, yeah. Sean, what will Ireland's role in these negotiations be? Will it be sort of good cop or bad cop or is it all on hold and depending on the results of the coalition talks? Well, 
strictly Ireland won't be taking part in the negotiations. It'll be between Britain and the European Union. Uh, any Irish input will be in the, the background when uh, Barnier reports back to the ministers. Uh, but the stated intention of the Irish government, certainly the one led by Leo Varadkar uh, and Simon Coveney, has been let's get this Northern Ireland business sorted out. Once we've done that, once you've got a proper withdrawal agreement in place, then we will be your best friends when it comes to the trade negotiation. And we will be really helpful and we all want to have a good relationship. And not only that, it's bad for Ireland if the British economy starts going bad. So we've no interest in seeing things go wrong in this country. Uh, we want to see it do well, but we have to have it doing well in a right way and, and having a proper relationship between uh, Ireland uh, or between Britain and the European Union and fitting into that common commercial policy in the first instance. But in all of the range of areas that the European Union encompasses, uh, it's, as we all know, it goes far beyond uh, a trading relationship. So that is the uh, objective of the Irish government. And I don't really see that changing with a change of government. This is a national policy. It's not a party political policy. And really, one of the remarkable things about Brexit over the past few years has been the consensus in Irish politics in terms of dealing with the Brexit problem. The UK has been hard line on pretty much everything when it comes to alignment. But which of the issues do you produce is likely to be the greatest sticking point with the EU of the coming months? Treatment of citizens, strangely mm. enough. I think that mm. one, uh, you know, forget about all these trade things. If you start hurting European citizens, mm. the governments are going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. They won't even wait for the European Commission to say things. They'll be going after you <laughs> capital to capital. Um, so that is the one uh, to be really careful about. And then as they get into the negotiations, this whole area of non-regression, level playing field, all the boring techie stuff, that's where, you know, yeah. that's the kind of long grass where you get bogged down on things. Uh, and then you've got the immediate trigger point of a fisheries deal, which you know, for the eight coastal states is probably an important enough thing, even though it's a minuscule part of the economy overall and has tiny employment element to it. It nevertheless becomes uh, quite emotional uh, for some reason. But for an awful lot of countries, they don't they have no interest in fishing in the European Union. So it'll be one of those things that happen on the, the western fringes of, of, of Europe. But yeah, citizens and then the technical non-regression stuff. And then also just trying to find out what it is the British actually really want. Here we are since 2016, still asking the same question, what do they actually want? Uh, until we get a, a real grip on that, you know, anything's possible. And we have a lot of this posturing and shouting and nonsense. Caroline, talking of sticking points, you represented Gibraltar as an MEP, as well as the Southwest. Um, Spain has welcomed chances for talks about Gibraltar. What do you expect to happen? Will Gibraltar end up as a form of veto for Spain to use in the end? Well, the tricky question of Gibraltar, the word I was advised never to use in the European Parliament because <sighs> uh, it would upset my Spanish colleagues. Um, so one of the things that we've discovered in the last few weeks is that these negotiations are going to be based on Article 217 of the treaty, which is a bit nerdy, but it basically means that it will require a unanimous vote at the end of the process rather than a, a qualified majority vote. So every country, every EU member state will have the option to, to veto the trade deal if they want. So obviously that is a brilliant opening for Spain to, to use Gibraltar as a as a bargaining trip. And, and you know, we've seen this week Greece talking about the Elgin marbles. I couldn't quite get to the bottom of whether that really was genuine or not. But um, so obviously there's lots of things there that 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 could come up as sticking points. So the Gibraltar thing, 
they're absolutely adamant, 100% adamant that they're not going to give up any sovereignty to Spain, not an inch. They're just not interested. Um, you know, they are more British than the British and that's the way they want to remain. So I've been over there twice. I spent a few days there in September when they celebrate their national day, which was really quite bizarre and amazing and fun all at the same time. Everybody in Gibraltar wears red and white for the day because their flag is red and white. So I was told to bring red and white clothes and I was there with quite an odd um, sort of group of parliamentarians. Normally MPs would go, but they didn't because uh, something was going on, some important vote at the time. So there was some very odd sort of collection of Tory peers, basically, from the House of Lords and um, and me. And... <laughs> um, you know, we all. I sat beside Anne Widdicombe, and there we were in our red and white. And <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, but you know, they. So in 1969, Franco closed the gate, the Gibraltar border, and and it was closed for 16 years. So that that's a year after I was born. So basically, sort of for the first 16 years of my life, Gibraltar was shut. And to get to Spain, they had to go on a boat to Morocco and then go on a boat back to Spain because there wasn't an airport at the time. And the most amazing thing is that they all say they're quite ready to do it again if they have to. And they would rather do that and they would rather bring their food in on a boat from Morocco than give any sovereignty to Spain. So it, it it's not negotiable. And I hope the British government realises that. I mean, I think, you know, if we're looking at a hard trade deal and tariffs and border checks and everything, then the Gibraltar issue is going to be really, really tricky. But they have made special arrangements for Northern Ireland. So you just have to hope that somebody somewhere is 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 remembering that they might have to try and make some special arrangements for Gibraltar and hope that the Spanish will go along with it. But I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not entirely confident that that will succeed. But that kind of intransigence, is that maybe a bit like No Deal, where people in Exeteers routinely in Britain said that they would undergo any amount of hardship in order to get No Deal? Is it is it all rhetoric? Or no, it's, is it actually, it's actually straight, right? It really isn't Gosh. rhetoric. I mean, it's hard mm. for us to kind of understand it and believe it. And, you know, I've asked lots of Gibraltarians if they, you know, if they really would do that. And they say, oh, absolutely, we've done it before. We'll do it again. We're British and, and we're not going to become Spanish and it's not up for negotiation, even a tiny bit, to the point that they have this airport which was built on the border between Gibraltar and Spain. And it has two exits. It's a bit like Geneva Airport where you can go out in France or Switzerland. So this airport was designed so you can exit the airport in Gibraltar or in Spain. But the Spanish side has never, ever been used because Spain have said that they would have to put a border guard or a Spanish police person, police officer in the airport. And Gibraltar won't even have a Spanish police officer in the airport because it's someone in a Spanish uniform. So it's it's a special case. <laughs> it sounds like one. <laughs> <laughs> through, through the work of MEPs that did care about the EU and its parliament, do, do we have any credit left in the Bank of Support in Brussels, Brussels and Strasbourg? Or is it good riddance? Have they just had enough of us now? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that the, uh, they had, had probably had enough of the circus in the plenary chamber in Strasbourg. Um, between the Brexit Party and ourselves and the Greens and you know all our all our sort of pro EU colleagues, so that that got a bit wearing for them. I think that mm. there was just all that argy bargy. 
If um, there was one sort of canary in the mine for me, it was when Best for Britain took our uh, cross-party delegation to Brussels um, at the end of last year and we had uh, Dominic Grieve led it and we had David Lammy and Caroline Lucas and Vince Cable and uh, Liz Savile-Roberts from Plaid and Peter Grant from the SNP and we saw country after country after country all day long um, trying to let them know that, you know, the majority of the country was now pro-Remain, that, that this mandate was very, very old mm. now from 2016. And I won't say which country, but there was one country which is very closely allied uh, to the UK and they, with deep sorrow, turned to our delegation and said to us, um, we have now come to the conclusion that if ever we are to get back together, first we must separate. Mm. And... I knew then that they'd sort of lost the even our allies on the Remain side in in other countries in Europe had they, you know they they were done with it they just they were done with it ready to give Boris a deal and and they wanted to move on and and you know there was the, there's a job to do you know there is a lot of work going on in Brussels which of course people in this country know nothing about because it's never talked about but you know there is a lot of work going on there and I think um, but but to answer your question is there you know is there any credit left in the bank I think absolutely there is and I think they were really really sad to lose a partner um, and I think the UK was very valued um, you know we heard often about how much they valued the British sort of pragmatism you know the way we negotiate the way we do business the sense of humour uh, we we changed the way that debating was done in the chamber so that it was more interactive and so we added an awful lot and uh, you know I think I think they were genuinely very very sad to see us go and didn't want to see us go but having said that they know that that the brexit debate here has actually strengthened them as a union and has has done more to to sort of dampen the the anti-eu feeling in in other countries i mean the danish delegation leader said to me one day that that the, the the polls in denmark were showing that the pro-eu sentiment was higher than it had ever been mm. because of brexit one of the best aspects of Britain's membership of the EU, Sean, and the concurrent peace agreement was that it drew the poison of the relationship with Ireland and we no longer had British and Irish governments essentially mistrusting one another. Is the British posture during the negotiations and the ramping up of attacks that we saw on Leo Varadkar in particular, is it likely to bring that back? Uh, it certainly doesn't help the mood uh, between the two countries, and a lot of it is sort of rhetoric and posture on the British side. But again, it's you know it's unhelpful. It doesn't seem to achieve anything uh, positive. It doesn't move the situation forward. That and the kind of general ignorance that we talked of earlier of, of anything that goes on in Ireland, um, despite the fact that we are, depending on whose list you use your fifth or sixth biggest trade partner, and in this country is supposed to be obsessed with international trade, well, we're one of the, your very biggest trade partners, but you just don't seem to pay us any attention at all. Uh, and that, I think, is, is a, a difficult uh, situation. I mean, you talked about the past. Between 1922, when we became independent, and 1972, the British Prime Minister did not visit Ireland. Not once. Never. 50, half a century didn't go to the folks next door. And that is just remarkable. And it was 1972, the year we had the referendum to join the European Union and the year when the, the, the troubles were at their heights. Those two things probably provoked the British Prime Minister into coming to Ireland. Now, since then, uh, there's been a lot of contacts and they've had this constant process, not just prime ministers, but everybody, all the politicians, the civil servants in particular, uh, through the European Union, a very deep engagement. And they all get to know each other and work with each other. And they all think everybody's fine and everything gets along. But with Britain leaving that arrangement, over time, 
relationships are going to be lost. That interaction is going to be lost. And that's what people are concerned about. So they're looking to find ways to have contacts, constant contacts and mm. real meaningful ones, having actual projects to work on that would replace a lot of the uh, European Union uh, work. They're looking at things like the British Irish Council, British mm. Irish Parliamentary Association. They're fine and as far as they go, but, you know, the attitude of the UK government, the devolved assemblies, the, the islands, what have you, they all take part at a very senior level, but the UK government has tended not to until very, very recently uh, get involved in that. But it's the civil service is the missing piece there. Uh, where do they get involved? How do they get uh, working on common projects? So that's an area that they're going to be uh, concerned about and trying to look to address if they can. Caroline, you're now not able to fight for European values in Parliament. I know you're missing the job. Who is still there who is doing the best work against populist forces in Europe? Um, oh, I think there are hundreds of people who, who are working against populist forces. I mean, certainly all my colleagues in Renew Europe, the Liberal group, um, you know, that was very much something that they talked about a lot. Um, and the Greens and the S&D group as well. So I would say that, you know, the majority of the House is is anti-right-wing populist forces. Um, but if I could pick out a couple of people, there were two young women in the Renew group called Catalin Czech and Anna Donath, and they were both young women who were elected in Hungary. Really inspirational young women. And, you know, to be elected as a Liberal and as a young Liberal woman... In Hungary. In, in Hungary. Mm in the current climate is really quite astonishing. And um, Catalin was one of the people who was just absolutely bereft when we left. I mean, the, um, you know, on our last day or two, the, obviously we've had lots of tears, the British delegation, you know, there's been lots of tears, but um, seeing all our colleagues crying in the plenary chamber, all of them, I mean, the men, you know, it's just astonishing. And, and the feeling was so much stronger than I had expected. And Catalin particularly was desperately upset because I think she'd seen us as allies and she had friends in the British delegation because there were only two of them. So, you mm. know, there were 16 of us and they kind of chummed up with us and came out with us and stuff. And, um, you know, it was quite funny because when we were leaving, we were saying to Catalin and Anna, now you need to teach us how to rise up against a right-wing government. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to need your expertise. Speaking of that, uh, in your farewell speech, you said the only silver lining in this dark cloud is that the division caused by Brexit could be the catalyst for something bigger, a wholesale reform of democracy in the UK. Is that the PR opportunity for PR you were talking about earlier? What What's most likely to happen, do you think? Oh, I don't know if it's a question of what's likely to happen. Um, I think... When I said that, when I wrote that speech, I well, I fundamentally believe that that nothing in our country is going to change until we have a, a fair representative voting system. Um, let's call it PR. Okay, there are lots of different voting systems. Let's not go into that. Um, I think the fact that the Conservatives got 43.6% of the vote and Labour and Lib Dems combined got 43.8% of the vote in December. You know, there's 0.2% in it and yet he has an 80-seat majority. It's it's a nonsense, really. And I think, you know, if, if we go back to 2016, you know, David Frost in his speech on Monday night was, was going on about how people were voting... Um, you know, because they don't believe in the European project and they don't believe in the concept of Europe and everything. Well, I, maybe some people did. Yeah. Let's say that some of those Leave voters understood all of that and, and were voting on those sort of very, 
intellect an intellectually rigorous argument about what Europe is. I think a lot an awful lot of people were voting because they felt disenfranchised. And I think that's just going to continue and it's going to play out in lots of different ways until we have, um, you know, a, a parliament that represents the people and our parliament does not represent the people. And, you know, I think I think it has to be a two pronged attack. I think we need a grassroots movement like the pro-EU movement we've seen growing over the last three years. I think somehow or other we have to communicate with people who who don't do politics and who don't know what PR is, who don't even probably know how our government is elected and have maybe have never voted for it anyway. So we have to try and communicate to all those people why this matters. Um, and then we need to get the Labour leadership on board. And, you know, unfortunately, this is not going to happen until Labour buy into it. Now for our regular segment, To the Barricades. Every week, one of our panellists will nominate a cause or event that Romaniacs listeners should throw themselves into. And today, it's Naomi's turn. What do you have for us? Um, Well, I think we all need to help the victims of um, flooding. Um, Johnson is still holed up in his mansion um, (laughs) and hasn't been to visit any of those affected by some pretty devastating flooding that's happening across the UK. Um, And also because now that we have left the European Union, we no longer have access to the brilliant European Solidarity Fund. Um, The EUSF was established in 2002 uh, in response to very devastating floods across Central Europe uh, that summer. And since then, it has provided over €5 billion worth of financial assistance to more than 20 countries. Um, including 162.3 million to the UK uh, to help with the devastating floods we had in 2007. Um, They in fact offered us um, a further 60 million um, in 2016, but David Cameron turned them down. (laughs) Um, uh, So we we don't have access to um, funds from our friends who have uh, tried very hard to help us in the past and we don't seem to be getting much support from uh, our Prime Minister to those affected by flooding. So I think listeners need to try and do all they can to help. If you search on GoFundMe, which is a crowdfunding platform uh, for Rhonda flooding relief, um, they need £20,000 to hit their target. Just before we started recording, they were on £14,000. And remember that Rhonda is probably one of the most impoverished parts of the UK uh, before uh, having to suffer the consequences of flooding. So um, I think that would be a really lovely thing for us all to do is to try and help the victims Good of idea. flooding this week. Next, Ireland went to the polls almost two weeks ago, but as we just said, a government still hasn't been formed. It was close to a three-way split at the top, with Sinn Féin winning the popular vote, and Leo Varadkar's Fine Gael, and Fiona Foyle not far behind. Sean, on Tony Connolly's Brexit Republic podcast, the rugged island to Romaniac's craggy island, <laughs> Sinn, Sinn Féin's result in the election was compared to Syriza in Greece, where people had got so disillusioned with the way politics was done that they voted for a radical alternative. For the benefit of our mostly British listeners, can you explain what happened? Well, the short version is, yes, Sinn Féin did very well uh, in the election. I mean, you said they won the popular vote. We don't really measure it in those terms because, like Caroline was discussing earlier about proportional representation, we've uh, a proportional system in Ireland. Sinn Féin won uh, 24.5% of the uh, vote, which means 75% didn't vote for Sinn Féin. So uh, that's the, the way it breaks down. But uh, in terms of the seat share and the vote share, the 
three big parties as they are now. Sinn Féin has become the, one of the big three parties. There used to be just two big parties, Fianna Gael and Fianna Foyle. Uh, they hate each other's guts, dating back to the time of the uh, Civil War in Ireland. Um, and now they are more or less being forced together because this challenger on the block, Sinn Féin, which has risen up quite rapidly, uh, their progress. I mean, 1997, they did, they had one. That was their first elected member for provisional Sinn Féin, uh, 2.5% of the vote. And slowly, slowly, but they didn't break 10% until uh, 2016 election. So suddenly they've come through very fast. And for outside observers, that's where that series uh, comparison starts to come in. It actually breaks down. And on a Brexit Republic, we kind of dissected it a bit there. The Syriza thing, they did come out of nowhere. And in Greece, uh, I was there reporting at the time, people were telling me, we're trying these guys because we've tried everybody else. They're all corrupt and useless. These guys haven't had office, so they can't be corrupt <laughs> and they can't be any more useless than, <laughs> than the, the ones we've got. <laughs> and that's why Syriza happened. Sinn Féin have been around quite a long time, about 50 years in this current incarnation. Uh, they have started to do well uh, in parallel with the peace process in Northern Ireland uh, bedding in and uh, also the specific factors of the Irish economy over the past 10 years. The, the real surge has occurred in that 10-year period uh, and what we're seeing now is an outworking of what happened with the collapse of the Irish economy about 12 years ago. Uh, that led to a lot of difficulties in the bread and butter issues, namely housing, healthcare. Austerity. Uh, yeah, the, the overspill from that. But, you know, I'm old enough to, to remember elections going back quite a, a while now uh, health has always been an, uh, an election issue in Ireland. It was when they surveyed it, it was put down as the number one issue uh, for what people voted on. Uh, about forty uh, percent said health is the big issue. That's because every winter there's overcrowding in the hospitals. Similar to here, only probably a bit worse. Brexit was down at one percent as a, a reason for why people voted for particular parties. The margin of error in that poll was one point three percent. So. That shows you where the, the Brexit thing came in. Northern Ireland didn't figure in it uh, either. Um, so health and housing were the two big issues there. And the housing situation broke down because of, it was a property bubble um, 10, 12 years ago. And they just haven't built uh, anything like the amount of housing they need. The population has continued to grow. What do you know? we got a housing problem. Uh, but people were voting on that. And, and that was the, the thing that was really driving it. Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, blamed for a lot of this stuff. I mean, 10 years ago, Fine Gael came uh, into office as the party touting a radical reform of the healthcare service based on what they'd done in the Netherlands. Uh, it didn't work after four or five years with Jettison. Then there's an all-party system, but that's going to take about 20 years to, to put in place. Everybody will say we'll fix the health service, but they've always said that forever. Housing, yeah, more fixable in the medium term, but it's still trying to crank up house production in an economy where there's very low level of unemployment now. There's a lot of construction work, but it's offices. Uh, there's a shortage of building workers. Uh, maybe we get some British building workers, you never know. <laughs> Not very Although good. they'll probably be all employed on uh, the high-speed railway or whatever's going yeah. to be built up in the north we'll of England. We'll need our workers because we're not going to have workers from anywhere else. Exactly. So. And and the, the supply from Eastern Europe is, is tightening up as well because their economies are growing after what, 15, 16 years in the EU. Um, people move back as well. They you know make a bit of money in the West, move back East, um, build a big house over there that they can live in, unlike the expensive little ones that they end up living in in Ireland. So, yeah, it, it's quite a difficult situation for whoever uh, forms the government. But who forms it? Who knows? It is very, very tight. To boil it down shortly, there's a possibility of a Sinn Féin-led left 
government. We've never had a left government in Ireland, never had a left of centre prime minister ever uh, wow. in the history of the country. Uh, but they're 13 seats short. Uh, there's a possibility of a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael end the civil war type coalition, but they're seven seats short. Uh, and then there's a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin coalition, uh, but they're five seats short. Uh, now, there's 21 independent deputies uh, in the House. It's quite a large number. They got about 15 percent of the vote compared to the 24 percent for Sinn Féin. Uh, what way will they hop? They could go into either of these things, but most of them are from what they call the gene pool of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Quite a lot of them former members of those parties. Just, you know, not really inclined to go with lefty type governments. Uh, so the numbers aren't there. And there's a big coalition dance going on at the moment uh, about who forms the government. It looks like when the uh, Doyle reassembles tomorrow, uh, Fianna Foyle and Sinn Féin will put their leaders forward to be Taoiseach. Uh, Fianna Gael have said they're not going to vote for any of them and leave them at it and see what happens. Uh, wait a couple of weeks and then say, oh, all right, you're forcing us to come back in and save you from something and try and pull a government together at that Stop, point. Stop, you're not doing my argument for PR any good at all, Sean. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We've been no. down this road a number of times with coalition building. Listen, I used to live in Belgium. We had okay. ages yeah, and ages with, with no government. And it was fine because the local governments took care of pretty much everything and life goes on. Uh, and that's just normal politics. Right across Europe, we've seen this and the fragmentation of votes and things. And the British system where you're shoehorned into this two-party system, but really you look at those two parties and you see at least seven political parties yeah, yeah, hiding course, inside these big broad yeah. coalitions. That's just and, an effect of and, electoral And systems. coalition negotiations should take a long time and that's exactly what Clegg and Cameron, well Clegg did wrong in 2010 was to rush them yeah. um, and and didn't secure a good enough situation for themselves as a uh, minority uh, coalition partner and then of course get wiped out yeah. the next time there's an election so it's absolutely right that you take the time to form a good government rather than to rush mm. it and end up with a bad one. But you've become addicted to this instant Friday morning result here in, oh, in Britain yeah, which you know, it's kind of nice if you, if you can't wait for things if you like your instant coffees and all that but I'll tell you something about the Irish system the election results it's a two day festival yeah. unbeatable if you're a political nerd Brilliant. you just watch RT television for the whole two days and have the internet going as well and it's awesome Reunited Ireland seems more likely now than at any time since the creation of the Republic um, The Economist did a whole front page on it last week didn't it how likely do you see it I think Brexit has certainly had a dislocating effect on politics uh, in Ireland. Uh, when the result happened, it was the first thing that occurred to me. The border is now in play in a way it hasn't been since 1925 when there was a border commission, which the uh, government in Dublin thought was going to lead to uh, a united Ireland, but it didn't. There has certainly been, uh, the issue is back on the table. There's no denying it. It had kind of drifted into the background with the, the um, peace process that had happened in Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin, of course, their raison d'etre is a united Ireland, but that's true of the other parties as well. I mean, Fine Gael, very mm. conservative political party, but their full name is Fine Gael, the United Ireland Party. Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party is their full name. So they're all in favour of uh, a united Ireland. The mechanics of how you bring it about, that's the tricky bit. Uh, they thought it was squared away with the Good Friday Agreement. So if there's a majority in Northern Ireland who are in favour of it and the Northern Ireland Secretary says, yeah, I think we should have a referendum, that's fine. Nobody anticipated it coming quickly and Brexit, I think, has acted as a catalyst. Uh, so it's in play. I don't see it happening in this parliamentary term. 
bit further down the road, but the time scale, scale has certainly telescoped in. But there's no guarantee that it would happen either. The, the action is all in Northern Ireland. Whatever about people in the Republic think, uh, that's where the votes are going to be. And people who've dug deep into the analysis of voting patterns in Northern Ireland don't think there's anything close to a majority there. Naomi, you grew up in the north and you still stay in touch there. What's your perspective on this? Do you think a reunited Ireland is likely? I think uh, Sean's quite right to say that it is likely in the mid to longer term and not immediately in the short term. There was a poll for the Belfast Telegraph um, uh, of Northern Ireland voters earlier this week um, and they asked a couple of questions. One was asking people to define whether they were unionist or nationalist. Uh, 28% of people defined as unionist, 25% as nationalist, but 40% said they identified as neither. Um, And then when asked the question about whether you want to stay in the UK or have a united Ireland, 52% uh, want to stay in the UK, 29% uh, for a united Ireland, 19% don't know. But again, that's in the framing of the question. And it was about, you know, now today, how would you how would you vote? I think once we see the effects of um, Brexit on the UK economy and that spilling over into the Northern Irish economy, um, which you know, it, it's when the Northern Irish economy uh, takes a bit of a, a nosedive. Do you see all of these sorts of tensions rise up? I always say that there is a frozen conflict in Northern Ireland, not a resolved conflict there. Um, and, and you know, money is often what has helped to keep it peaceful for, for the last 20 years. So uh, I would pretty much agree with Sean at the moment. I don't think there's an immediate appetite for it, but... Um, I think when you ask people a slightly different question, you would probably get um, an answer that would indicate most people in the long term would be happy to consider uh, a united Ireland. Finally, this week, won't someone think of the Hazel Dormouse? This is the accusation levelled at the government that the fisheries, environment and agriculture bills that are supposed to replace EU directives after Brexit will allow farmers to voluntarily opt out of protections for certain species like hedgehogs, dormice and our personal favourite, the humble vole. One of the key issues is air standards. Under the EU regulations, ministers had to stick to targets and show how they'd be met. Now they just have to set out the steps without accountability. Is this what divergence means in practice, lowering the standards? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we could diverge from the EU and we could we could keep to the standards we've already got. I mean, Boris is quite proud of saying that we have higher standards in the EU, so perhaps we could maintain those standards. But I think if we look at what David Frost said, the, the reason we are Brexiting is so that we don't have to follow EU rules. So we are going to plough our own furrow and you know go our own way. And, and we don't want to, any kind of dynamic alignment. We don't want to stick with European Union rules. So it's it's got to be a wait and see, hasn't it? I, I don't see what they're going to gain by lowering environmental standards. But then if we're talking about cutting costs, cutting red tape, making things easier for business or farmers, then, then perhaps that's the route they'll choose to go down. But I do think that it's really important that people understand that farmers have to be supported in some way. And, um, you know, farming is a loss-making industry. And so even if, you know, people sort of moan about the cap and and the payment system and everything there is still going to have to be some kind of payment system and and i think it's just not really clear yet what the british government how how they're going to do it and when i talk to farmers in the southwest 
you know, the biggest gripe really is that they just still don't know what they're going to get paid for and what they're not going to get paid for, how they're going to be supported. Naomi, is this the best example of how difficult any rejoin project is? Um, the government is backsliding and deregulating standards after standards. Just implementing it is going to take years and then it'll all have to be reversed if we rejoin. Yeah, I think that's probably a good analysis. Um, but again, I think that we're giving the government a lot of credit to assume that they've got plans for all of these things I think at the moment we're seeing them jump from issue to issue and it's sort of points of political expediency you know bringing forward HS2 um, is all about you know keeping their their new blue blue wall people on board pushing immigration burden onto business to do a lot of the checks Um, everything at the moment is so short-termist I don't actually think they're thinking about the long term too much but actually environmental things can change pretty quickly Um, If we think about our clean beaches, um, actually, it doesn't take very long for those to become very disgusting and grubby very, very quickly again, particularly if we have a bit of a hot summer and we haven't got the EU uh, reminding us that we've got to keep them nice and clean and free of, you know, used condoms and needles and all sorts of other disgusting things that we used to find all over our shores not that long ago. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time to place a couple more bricks in the brand new Brexit Bridge. Each week, a guest places a new brick in the foundations, imbued with the values that will help rebuild Britain's relationship with the EU. We started last week with the continued free movement of people. Easy one. Caroline Voden and Sean Whelan, here's your clipboard and crane operator's licence. What are your choices, Sean? Well, my choice would be uh, language skills, uh, in particular skills in the English language. Uh, <laughs> In other words, tone it down a bit, folks. Learn to disagree without becoming disagreeable. I think that, and, and it cuts both ways. Uh, we've enough on our plates dealing with Brexit uh, and its outworkings. Let's just try and keep it civilised. Here, here. Caroline, what's yours? With a media hat on, mine is that we should aim to have more positive stories about the EU in our media. I think that's been a real lack over the last 30, 40 years. Um, And we need to know some of the good things that are coming out of Brussels and, you know, some of the really positive work that's being done there. I think if we had more of an idea of of what that was all about, people would get more of a sense of the benefits of Europe rather than always hearing about the so-called disadvantages. Yeah, I'm certainly 100% behind that one. Right, and this week's foreign language clip is live in Gaelic from Sean Whelan. I have already embarrassed myself horribly trying to pronounce some uh, names of Irish political parties, so this is going to be fantastic. Sean? I would say Nínyartga Curlacaila. What does that mean? Uh, It's generally (laughs) translated as things go better or easier when you do it together. Burden shared, burden halved, and that sort of thing. Cooperate. It's the old uh, metal... uh, communities working together to get things done so that's a an old saying lovely thanks thanks sean and that's the end of the podcast thanks to naomi and to our guests caroline voden and sean whelan now it's time for our theme song demon is a monster by corner shop their new album england is a garden is out in just two weeks and you can pre-order it from ampleplay.co.uk now time to thank our latest patreon backers It's a big shout out from me to Kay, Demetrius Papa Georgiou, Elizabeth Baldwin, Camilla Wilkes, Val Monaghan, Karen Draper, Anna Kiss, 
and C. Baca. And it's hello from me to Patrick Berry, Andrew Logan, Jane Clare, Rhiannon Hargreaves, Kat Arney, Mark Chapman, John Medland and Roma Grant. And it's hello from me and thanks to Christopher Atwood, Lewis Harper, Graham Lincoln, MJ Duck, Stuart Watkins, Stephen Thomas, Natalie Cass and Danny Smith. And finally, hello and many thanks from me to Rick Bean, Eugenie Caron, Dan KP, Sean Allison, Stella Morello, Jez Wiles, Terence Pope and Kay. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Ross Taylor with Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 